going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. Good evening and welcome. I'm Debbie George Addis, and this is America Can We Talk. I want to read a quote to you. It's just an astonishing thing that this had to be said on the floor of the United States Congress. Congressman Louis Gohmert from the great state of Texas asked, what is the purpose of throwing money at programs that train law enforcement to spot the Islamophobe instead of the jihadist? That was actually a question he had to ask. Why are we giving money on a federal, a federal bill, federal tax dollars to law enforcement to train them to locate Islamophobes instead of jihadists? Backing up, as I'm sure all of you learned over the past week. We've had yet more Islamic uh, violence in America. We had last weekend, we talked about last weekend briefly, we had the Saturday, September 17th. We had the bombs in Chelsea and in New Jersey. We had a knife attack in Minnesota Mall. And so all of this is Islamic violence of one form or another. But when Louis Gohmert said that in the floor of the House, what he was talking about is this. There is funding in the United States Congress for the Department of Homeland Security. And what the Department of Homeland Security does in controlling that money, it has, over the course of our battle with jihad, it has already spent about $1.6 billion, with a B, billion dollars, on wasteful programs that train local law enforcement. And much of that money goes to something called the CVE, Countering Violent Extremism. It's a term that the Islamic activists in America came up with. They didn't want to have terrorism in America called Islamic terror or Islamic jihad, anything related to Islam. They wanted a name that could as equally apply to any person. So this Countering Violent Extremism programs have spent money, your tax dollars, the DHS directs toward groups that are affiliated with the terrorist group, the Muslim Brotherhood, and your tax dollars are going training local law enforcement to watch for Islamophobia. And folks, the reason I raised this tonight, this was a big battle on the floor of the House and had to do with a suspension bill, which is essentially a short-term uh, I don't want to go off on that right now. We'll talk about later what suspension bill is. But this is a extremely important battle, which the Republicans tried to push through in a form that would have little discussion, little debate, and would end up having funding go toward more of this idiotic notion that you're going to pay your tax dollars to have Congress fund something that ends up punishing you for questioning whether Islam is a religion of peace or not, rather than trying to find more jihadists in our, in our, within our um, shores. So anyway, so Louis Gormert went off on this. But the reason I raise this tonight is this. Monday night, tomorrow night, we have the first presidential debate. And it is, you know, anticipated to be the single most widely watched presidential debate ever. 
In fact, some people are saying it's going to be watched by more people than even most more previous Super Bowl. And you know, it's a good thing. It's great that people are tuned in. I hope they're tuned in to listen and not just for entertainment. But one thing I really want to point out is this. The single biggest threat to America's security in this world and within our own borders is Islamic Jihad. These are words that Hillary Clinton can barely bring herself to say. She can't talk about what the threat is. She, even when she's faced with the facts, like with, we had recent attacks where, you know, a bomb, she can't stand that, that Donald Trump pointed out was probably a bomb and everyone knew it was a bomb. This is a woman who cannot talk about the source of the problem. And I want to uh, float two other phrases. I want to talk about them throughout our evening tonight. One is a phrase that was used by, and if you don't know the name, Andy McCarthy, he's a prosecutor. He is the one who prosecuted the blind shake. He's talking about the idea. We have to recognize that the violence we're seeing in Islam within our shores is the result of, is the outgrowth of Islamic supremacist ideology. You know, when we have some of these attacks and we realize that the attacker, the shooter, the stabber uh, is a Muslim, immediately the authorities go to the question of, well, does he have any connections to any known terrorist groups? Who's he been talking to recently? They actually act like maybe we shouldn't be calling it Islamic violence because they didn't find a membership card in ISIS in his wallet. We have to be ready to point out the idea that it is the ideology of Islam itself that is the problem. Islamic supremacist ideology is a great term for it. It is what is inspiring these most recent attacks in America, and it will continue to do that, especially when we are unwilling to name the enemy. So Louis Gohmert on the floor of the House brilliantly pointed out, we have simply got to be willing to call it what it is. So then he actually su- suggested, well, how about at least, so I would, one name I want to mention really quickly, I only have 45 seconds here, but Congressman Michael McCall, he's a chair of the Department of Homeland Security, the Committee of Homeland Security. He was hiding from Republicans, hiding from you the idea. He still wants to fund this effort to weed out Islamophobia. He cut out the countering violent extremism term out of that bill, tried to come up with another friendly sounding term. But if, as Louis Gohmert always does, he dug in, he read the bill and discovered it still required this money, come your tax dollars, to go to uh, force, DHS would force agencies receiving this money to work with community partners. And within DHS, what that means is work with groups friendly to Islam who will try to be weeding out Islamophobia instead of fighting jihad. So, folks, you know what? We're out of time in this segment. This guy is going to start playing music while I'm trying to talk. But I do want to tell you that we have coming up in the next segment. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West is here with us tonight. We're going to talk about the recent uh, violence on the streets in our cities, and we're going to talk about attacks in America and jihad. But I'm telling you, folks, this, this willful blindness to what the real problem is is a danger. And if Hillary Clinton can't name it, she can't fight it. Don't go away. Talk to you after the break. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Thanks so much for tuning in. We have a guest with us this evening, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. He's been on the show many times, and probably everyone listening is already knows who he is. But just to remind you, remind you in case you don't, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West is currently the Executive Director and Board Vice Chair 
of the America's Think Tank, the National Center for Policy Analysis. He also served the United States Congress as a Republican from Florida from 2011 to 2013. But most important to the reason why I wanted him to come on the show tonight is he also has a long history with the United States military. He served in the U.S. Army in 1983. He joined in 1983. He deployed to Kuwait excuse me, to Kuwait and Iraq. He's just had a long involvement with our military. And this is a man who has a truly encyclopedic understanding of Islam, which is why I just love having him here. So uh, welcome, sir. It's good to be with you. Thanks for, I'm just so glad you could come tonight. You know, I was talking about my first five about this unwillingness of Hillary Clinton and the American left to identify the enemy. And, you know, Hillary has made the argument that, well, if she doesn't, or if we, all of us, just never say Islam, we never connect Islam to terror, or we agree that that it's just a, um, it's not a religious problem, it has to do with some other whatever it is, geographic problem, she can't agree that Islam is the problem. And so I, I want to, and because she says, in fact, if we do that, we will embolden the terrorists and that she says Donald Trump's rhetoric emboldens the terrorists. What do you think about that? Well, it's a very insidious statement. And the thing that you have to understand about the liberal progressive left is that their national security strategy is based upon three things, obfuscation, denial, and lying. When you think about John Kerry, who was overseas uh, and recently said that if the media just didn't report Islamic terrorism, the American people wouldn't know about it. We just recently had James Clapper, the head of the uh, director of national intelligence, said that, you know, this is really all about climate change. We know that. The, well, I mean, it's <laughs> I, true. It yes. and, and John Kerry said that air conditioning is more of a threat than ISIS is. But, of course, they're not going to be turning off the air conditioning there at Foggy Bottom at the State Department. When the president is faced with terrorist attacks and San Bernardino or Orlando is about gun control. It's not about the terrorists. So this is an issue that they don't want to deal with. And what I find so unconscionable and so quite you know hypocritical is that any time there is, you know, without a doubt, an Islamic terrorist attack on the soil of the United States of America, what are we told? We're told that you're not to rush to judgment. You shouldn't be too presumptuous, what have you. But yet if there is a police officer shooting in the United States of America, you know, this is horrible. It has to be condemned. I mean, Hillary Clinton went out, uh, I think, on the Steve Harvey show and said, you know, I have to go out and talk to white people about this. I didn't know that she was you all's ambassador yeah. to, to black folks. <laughs> I didn't vote but, for her. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, it is that nature where of them that you look and say they are not the type of people that can keep America safe. Not not in this current uh, 21st century battlefield. You know, um, Alan, I read, I believe it was on one of your website or a posting by you that made that point, and it really resonated. It is every time there's a police shooting, there's just a, um, instant willing willingness to assume the officer was at fault, mm-hmm. that there is a rampage of, of unjustified violence going well, on. I mean, going back to Cambridge, Massachusetts, when the president first came in, what did he say? The police acted stupidly. And he has continued with that type of rhetoric, and he has set the stage for what we see happening today where we have a mob rule or mob violence that takes uh, that takes place, and he never stands on the side of the rule of law or our law enforcement officers, just the same as, you know, we have a president that is deploying American uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines into the combat zones, and that's what they are of Iraq and Syria. Just last week he sent 500, two weeks before that, 400, but yet they're not doing anything. As a matter of fact, at a Ford operating base just 25 miles south of Mosul last week, they had a rocket attack. And one of those rockets even had mustard gas in it. Well, being a former artillery officer, I can tell you something very simple. When people fire rockets at you, if you have your counter-battery radar systems that are up, 
before that thing can reach the apex of its trajectory, you already have the point of origin, and you fire your artillery or you bring in, uh, you know, close air support assets, being it attack aviation, helicopters, or fixed wing, and you take that firing position out. We're not doing that. They're just sitting over there as targets because they don't understand how to deal with this enemy. I couldn't agree more. They don't understand how to deal with this enemy. And you have to say, back to the uh, original 9-11, I think that many Americans were unaware of the uh, – they just were not familiar with Islam. I think people maybe studied it in college. It's one of those great great worlds, great religions. You study it. It wasn't until 9-11 that a lot of Americans, first of all, thought, why did they do that to us? And then over the course of time since 9-11 up till today, and we see all the Islamic violence around the world, yeah. it's dawning on Americans that Islam is inspiring them to hurt other people. And somehow at present, and people on the left just can't get that. I want to tell you one thing and ask your reaction to it. So the New York City mayor, uh, de Blasio, after, this is after the bombs just in Chelsea and the one in New Jersey from the same guy. He actually co-wrote a, um, an editorial in the New York Times along with the um, mayor of uh, London, who's Muslim, Sadiq Khan, and the mayor of Paris, and uh, Hidalgo, I believe it's pronounced. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they were arguing that there's absolutely no reason to change immigration policy, no reason to block Islamic immigrant, immigrants coming into their countries because their term was... Islamic terror is vanishingly rare. And I feel like you're just living, it's like a, a well, no. George Orwell. Well, no, again, that's, that's part of the obfuscation and denial. If you really want to understand, talk to the people in Germany about what they're experiencing. And how could the mayor of Paris say something like that when what has happened since, I believe, uh, November of last year to, to, to this day, the two incredible amount of attacks that they have had. Now, here, is, here are three mayors of some of the most you know, largely populated cities in their respective countries. And they want to try to feed us this false narrative that, that you know, hey, there's nothing to worry about. The world is all full of unicorns and rainbows <laughs> and, and everything is, is good to go. When you have an enemy that has said, we will infiltrate refugees. And, and look at what you, you just mentioned in your opening about what happened up in Minnesota. You know, the, here is a young man who is a result of the Somali refugee program. Yep. Uh, when they went to interview his dad and, and talk to him, his dad, who has been in the United States of America for 15 years, needed an interpreter. So what does that tell you? This is not assimilation. And everyone knows that there have been nine terrorist, Islamic terrorist convictions coming out of the Somali community in Minnesota. The, we have a problem with this, this immigration issue. The Holy Land Foundation trial that happened right here in Texas, the largest uh, Islamic terrorist funding case, you know, you know, CARE, the Council for American and Islamic Relations, unindicted co-conspirator, but yet they have a an incredible opulent office sitting right off of uh, Capitol Hill down from the House of Representatives. So it is not a matter of the enemy uh, being at the gates. The enemy is within the gates, and we have to come to understand that. We do. You know, Alan, I think this, we're speaking with Alan, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West tonight. I think this should be standing alone, the singular, decisive victory, a reason that Donald Trump should win this election. I think the debate tomorrow night, I, I hope he can come on strong and, and you know, in a substantive, solid, clear, factual way, because I think that the position Hillary Clinton's taking, and she is essentially perpetuating Barack Obama's position, which is we need to, and we should be dedicated to trying to bring more and more Islamic refugees into mm-hmm. America that should be the that should be the the end of the of her campaign, and I I just I, I'm flabbergasted. It feels a little bit like America has either blinders on or or is mesmerized, or hypnotized, because you do hear people echoing, well, they, but they are victims and they are refugees, and we've always opened our doors, refugees. 
I hope, I mean, that just seems to be, should be decisive in this election. Well, you know, if, if you ever read Homer's The Iliad, uh, the Trojans also opened their doors up to, you know, refugees by, by way of a beautiful Trojan horse. And, uh, you know, they were, they were conquered from within. And so it, this is the exact same thing that you see here. And, you know, the, the difference is prior to 9-11, this enemy was attacking us there. You know, if you go back and you talked about the the Beirut barracks bombing in 1983, if you talk about the Kobar Towers, you talk about the bombings of the embassies in uh, Kenya and uh, Tanzania, I believe. Yep. Th- these things were happening. Uh, it, you go back and you were always getting the reports, you know, the, the things, the, 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 the Munich Olympics. Uh, but yet now this has come to our shores. And I think that you're going to see the American people react to the ballot box a little bit different. There's not a lot of folks going out and saying, I think, that they're going to vote for Donald Trump. But I will tell you something that was really interesting to me last week when I was in Washington, D.C. You don't see Hillary Clinton bumper stickers in yard signs. And, you know, the little That's place great. the little <laughs> place where I stay is right off of Capitol Hill. You still see Barack Obama 2008 stickers and, and everything, but you don't see a lot of Hillary Clinton stuff. And we know that she's struggling with the attendance at her quote-unquote rallies and what have you. You cannot go on with these failing policies when it comes to the security of the United States of America. Think about how many major terrorist assaults have happened on the watch of President Barack Obama. It's unconscionable. It is unconscionable. We're speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. We're coming up on a break here. but I, And after a break, I want to turn and talk about the um, dealings with between the police and the communities in Charlotte and in Tulsa. But I'm wrapping this one up, and to your point a moment ago, you know, there is a – there has been such an effort of political correctness to deal with the problem of Islam in America. So there is the labeling of people as Islamophobic. You're, you're and, in the basket of deplorables. There you are. And, yeah, and oh, yeah. I, I heard some great uh, statistics about the consequence of the basket of deplorables mm-hmm. comment. But anyway, I think that we're in a place where people aren't, no matter what they're politically correctly supposed to say, at the ballot box, they're going to say, somebody better stop this. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this break. And welcome back to America Can We Ever Talk. This is Debbie George Addis, and we have joining us in the studio tonight Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. Just always love having him here. Just love to talk about all the issues facing America. And I want to switch over and talk now about the recent episodes of uh, police and community interaction that did not go very well. Mm-hmm. I want to hit both the incident in Charlotte and in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And mainly, you know, I don't really want to recount the details of all of them except. I guess the first thing I want to hit with you, because you have so much military experience, I actually feel sympathy or concern for police who have to make decisions in a split second. And though you haven't been a police officer, you served in the theater of war mm-hmm. and carried weapons around. Can you speak generally to, to just the instantaneous nature of, of the interactions you encounter? Well, there, there, there are definitely similarities. And when you look at rules of engagement thing of this, of this nature, you know, in the battlefields today, we have put our men and women in uniform on their heels because, you know, they are constrained by these rules, you know, set down by, you know, the lawyers and the, the people in the faraway headquarters that give an advantage to the, uh, the opposition, to the enemy. 
uh, what I see happening in the United States of America now is horribly so a narrative that is out there that is demonizing the police officers, calling causing them to be very tentative uh, because, you know, if they do take some type of proactive action, they're going to be considered guilty first. Now, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, I, I before I came over here, I got a text message uh, from my daughter who's back in school in South Florida. And one of her friends who was with her as a Navy Sea cadet was uh, was just killed by another black person. Oh, they tried to rob them, you know, young oh. kid. Now, now, my question is, are you going to hear a lot of protests about that? We'll never hear her name. You never hear the name. But but the point is that when you look at the comparison between what has happened in Tulsa and Charlotte, first of all, allow the 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 system of um, process and procedures, the rule of law to go through. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And people obviously reviewed the evidence, and we see what happened. The decision in Tulsa was that the uh, the uh, the female officer there has been charged, just the same as the officer who shot the uh, the black man in the back when he was running away several times. Yep. He's been charged. He's probably going to get the death penalty in South Carolina. But the difference in you know North Carolina and Charlotte, first and foremost, a lot of people don't understand why all of this attention. Charlotte's a battleground state. And so they're going to try to use this as a political perspective first and foremost. Now, there was a, a young black man that was killed out there in the protests. You don't hear a lot about that either. So, you know, when, when people talk about Black Lives Matter, what we need to understand is that there are certain black lives that matter. Not all of the black lives matter, because if that were so, this would be a widespread movement that I would get on board with because I would like to see, you know, the, this taking place in Chicago, all the inner cities. I would like to see the Black Lives Matter when it comes to better education opportunities. I would like to see the Black Lives Matter when it comes to the fact that 13 to 15 million black babies have been murdered since 1973 Roe versus Wade. You don't hear those things. Uh, and so they're trying to narrowly define this in a political aspect. And, of course, you follow the money, and there's George Soros there. So when you look at what is going on in, in, in Charlotte, tell me what the NASCAR Hall of Fame has to do with that shooting. Why was it looted? Tell me why, you know, a, an individual, an innocent bystander was drug away and beaten. Tell me why a journalist was almost thrown on top of a bonfire. Yeah. Okay, if the message is about bringing attention to the shootings, then let's stay focused on that. Let's stay focused on how we can have better education opportunities, better economic opportunities, restore the family. If black lives truly mattered, then how have we gone since the time that I was born in 1961 when a two-parent household in the black community was between 75 and 77% to the day where it's 24%? That is the real issue that they should be talking about, not this cherry-picking. Now, are, are there some concerns out there about the interaction between the police and the black community? Absolutely. But the method that I see that is being implemented to bring attention to that is all politicized. It, it is not about, you know, what really should be mattering. And, and, and I'll tell you something else that I think should incense us is that when you have everyone celebrating Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick, I know I may pronounce it wrong, it's going to be on the cover of Time magazine. But yet the NFL told the Dallas Cowboys they could not have a decal on their helmet to honor the five police officers that were killed. See, that, that, there's something wrong with that. That's a hypocrisy that has to be squashed. And it's a politically correct hypocrisy. Absolutely. You can only side, yeah, you can't side with the police. That's not politically correct. I want to talk about, though, the impact. So Hillary Clinton had statements immediately after both these shootings, and she issued just this has to stop, this has to end. What I really, the people in all this, I feel the most um, sympathy isn't the right word, but just compassion for is 
all these riders, I know some of them are paid by George Soros, and maybe a lot of them are paid by George Soros, but there is an intentional effort by the American left to create the impression in the minds of people that your fellow citizens really hate you. You are you are a minority and no one likes you. And the, I think that the, I, who I most feel sorry for are people in the black community who want to have a decent home, a decent life, a decent Absolutely. family. And they are being told by Hillary Clinton, the only way to that is me and the Democrat Party because mm-hmm. everybody else hates you. And so they are perpetuating the voting patterns that have put them in this situation of inner city poverty. It is just cruel. Well, it's a collectivist Marxist ideology that, you know, you take people and you put them in collective groups and you pit them against each other, or you, you, you say that only I can be the one that can, can protect you. You you know, you don't have the ability uh, in and of yourself and, and you create more victims than you do victors. And so when I look at what has happened across all the inner city urban communities in the United States of America, which have been under Democrat control for probably, you know, the last 50 some odd years, you know, we have something that is genocidal. We have something that is, you know, like a disease that has happened. You know, when Lyndon Johnson came up with his, you know, very brilliant policy idea that if a woman has a child out of wedlock, as long as she does not have a man in the home, the government will continue to give her a check. What Lyndon Johnson did was he broke down the thing that has been fundamental in the black community for hundreds of years, and that's the black family. And even a liberal Democrat senator by the name of Daniel Patrick Monaghan wrote the book The Negro Family to criticize Johnson for that. And what did the Democrats do? They criticized Monaghan for bringing that out. They saw it as too much of an opportunity, an opportunity to what they thought was buy black votes for generations. You know, it always kills me. You only have in this segment three minutes left, and I have a bunch of subjects I want to hit. But I did want to ask you, so after these shootings and the most recent episodes in Charlotte and Tulsa, Hillary Clinton came again out again talking about what we really need are national police standards. And she's saying she's talking about these as though the police and all these shootings are just inadequately trained, inept, mm-hmm, or kind, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I honestly, those words kind of give me a chill when I hear well, they should. Up, what do you think? Yeah. Well, they should, because the, the second tenet of socialist economic theory is nationalizing of production, being it, you know, your health care, being it your financial, uh, and now all of a sudden, you know, the law enforcement agency. So, you know, law enforcement is a local thing, just like education is supposed to be local. It's not supposed to be dictated from Washington, D.C., so, again, you know, as Rahm Emanuel said, never let a good crisis go to waste. So how can we look at this and we can exploit it? First of all, we exploit for the electoral patronage, and then we can exploit for us to subsume and gain more power. So the next thing you know, there are going to be some new construction cranes up in Washington, D.C. that has the Department of Law Enforcement Agency, you know, which which will then be the place by which all of our law enforcement agencies are are taken over. And your chief of police is no longer responsive to the local community. Your chief of police is part of a hierarchy. I'm so glad you said all that, and I couldn't agree more. It should give Americans chills to hear Hillary talking about. It's just the concentration of power of Washington in Washington or another segment of society. And I, I just, I think it's, that was her one big thing she keeps talking about. And I think we should, um, we all need to understand the dangerous path that would take us down. Okay. In this segment, I want to hit, and I mentioned to you in the break, I saw that there was a letter, um, that was written. This is, you were, you referred a moment ago to Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback, the, who remains seated or whatever he does during the national anthem. There was a letter written by a Marine colonel, um, retired Marine colonel Jeffrey Powers mm-hmm. wrote a letter to the NFL commissioner essentially saying, how dare you let those players sit? 
during the national anthem or, or, or whatever they do, kneel, sit, whatever they do. They don't stand up. And he made the analogy to you enforce rules about idiotic things like if they twerk in the end zone because yes. after a touchdown or they excessive celebration. Yes, yeah. they can't do that. I mean, they get punished for that, but you can't punish them for this. It was a really moving, powerful letter. And the one point I was going to make about it, and then we only have about 30 seconds here, but Colin Kaepernick is part of the generation that has been taught to hate America, to hate the symbol of the flag. It is just, I mean, he may have an issue too, Black Lives Matter, but it is that, that deeper hatred of America, disdain for patriotism. And in 30 seconds, what do you think of that? Well, it's comes back to education. I always tell people the most important elected position in America is school board because when we continue to go down the path of people that are teaching revisionist history and teaching history from an ideological agenda perspective, this is the end state. This is what you get. You know, I would love to take young uh, Colin Kaepernick over to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan and put him on a forward operating base with the men and women there that are getting rocketed or fighting or going out on patrol. And uh, when they raise the flag, in the morning over their forward operating base, I'd like to see him take a knee in front of them. Oh, my gosh, what a beautiful thought. The other point this uh, gentleman made who wrote to the NFL commissioner was the idea that this guy had fought in various theaters of war, and he said, a lot of my friends came home with a, uh, with a flag draped over their casket. So powerful. So Irres- that's a, yeah. Irrespective of their color, yep. the flag was draped over their coffin, just like it was draped over my father's coffin. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So we're talking with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, and we come back after the break. We're doing Cruise Through the News with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, Lori Medina, and Wade Miller. Tell you about him after the break. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Love, love doing this radio show on Sunday evenings. I would do one two hours a day if I could because I just love talking about the greatness, goodness of America and all the challenges that we face. So this is our Cruise Through the News segment. And I just have a bunch of short stories I wish we could spend longer on, but we can't. And I want to also mention that we are uh, starting with a new second hour roundtable co-host. We have had, um, you know, all the names of our normal people, our usual late, uh, people, but we are adding a person tonight. Wade Miller is here, and he is the senior regional coordinator for the South Central Region of Heritage Action, but he's really not here on behalf of Heritage. He's been here on behalf of himself, and nothing he says is intended in any way to reflect upon or suggest that it is a position of heritage. Is that okay? Did I say that okay? I think that'll work. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So this is our round table. We have Lori Medina, Wade Miller, and Lieutenant Colonel Alan West still here. Okay. First one. It has recently come out that Obama, President Obama, used a pseudonym in emails with Clinton. This came out when the FBI documents were revealed, causing us all to realize that all the time that Obama said he didn't learn until he read it in the media that Hillary wasn't using the government-protected server he actually knew all along. He was communicating with her all along, using a pseudonym, trying to hide it. Reaction, anybody? Well, I'll go first. I think this uh, kind of adds another layer to the corruption we've seen. Uh, this explains in more detail why the Department of Justice maybe didn't move on this, why the FBI didn't move on this, and uh, you know why government is not being held accountable for this series of what were clearly illegal acts. And even the FBI director uh, basically said that these were illegal acts. Yeah. Anything to add? Well, uh, again, for the president of the United States of America to come out and say, I believe back in March with CBS, that the first time I heard about, you know, my secretary of state using a private email server was through media reports. 
that is unbelievable yes. because either you are not having discussions, you know, via email with your secretary of state or you're blatantly lying. So now we know that the president was blatantly lying and he tried to use this pseudonym as a means by which he could have plausible deniability. But, you know, once again, you get the late minute, last minute data dump on a Friday, which lets you know that they're really trying to hide something. But again, you know, the American people are seeing, as Wade just said, an incredible corruption. We trust our Department of Justice. We trust our Federal Bureau of Investigation. And now we know we can't trust them. We already knew we can't trust the IRS. Now we're learning you can't trust the Department of Homeland Security. And I think that that is going to play into what happens in the November election. Let us hope. Anything to add? Oh, well, Chase, Chelsea had a fake name, too, so why shouldn't Obama? Oh, I see. So it's kind of about <laughs> parody, huh? <laughs> right. Fairness. Another fairness thing. Okay, this is one. I don't know what you guys think. Wade and I talked on the phone earlier, and I don't think we have the same opinion on it. But anyway, Barack Obama vetoed a bill that passed without any no votes, House and Senate, saying that the 9-11 victims can sue Saudi Arabia. This was a, uh, as I say, no, no vote, no negative votes. And, um, and President Obama has vetoed it. And they've actually announced that they believe in the House and Senate, they have sufficient votes to override President Obama's veto. And so Obama's concern is, of course, the uh, idea of, you know, we, we just don't do this to other countries. We have a long foreign government reliance on immunity in the same way that we in America feel free, we're not immune from being sued by the citizens of Saudi Arabia. But what do you think about that? Anybody? Yeah, look, I mean, there's a precedent here. We have lawsuits that have been brought against Iran for their terrorist actions and activities. And so if you do have state-sponsored terrorism, I think the American people have every right to take, you know, those countries before uh, civilian courts. But unfortunately, with the Obama administration, we just give, you know, the terrorist uh, country billions of dollars. We've got to stand up for the American people, and and I have never considered the Saudis to exactly be our friends. I mean, they have played us very well right. over time. Well, <laughs> and uh, the person that's going to have a lot of problem with it will be Hillary because she's the one that the Clinton uh, Foundation has received all the money from. So they've received, you know, <laughs> yeah. tens of million, you know, millions of dollars from the Saudis. So she's going to be the one that's going to be in the crosshairs in this whole situation. Yeah, especially, God forbid, that she wins and has to deal with this issue. Do you have anything to add? Well, I'd say that in in normal circumstances, if the government is being responsive and acting on threats and misdeeds by foreign nations, then I can understand why we might want to hold back and allow them to take the uh, first step forward. But in this case, we've had uh, at least one and maybe two that have been hesitant to hold the Saudis accountable for some of the things they've been doing overtly and then behind the scenes. And uh, so I think that it would be nice to see uh, uh, and one of the last acts of Congress uh, would be his own party to overturn a veto by the president and send him out with that kind of a legacy and allow us to move forward and, and maybe bring some light to uh, some of the things, as uh, Colonel West was mentioning, uh, what the Saudis have been doing and that they, they aren't exactly our friends. Well, that is a great point. That's a, and on that one, they're not exactly our friends. It's, I think it's a very challenging one. Um, I'm a little less. Uh, I want the American people to have justice. I I. I am concerned about the idea of citizens suing another country. I mean, I just think we have to tread very carefully on there. I mean, Saudi Arabia is not wonderful, and they have terrible um, 
a terrible human rights record. They're, they're just, I mean, they're, it's a deplorable place. But I feel hesitant about that. I, I, um, I think I have a little bit of the sense of, you know, if they're not on our, if we haven't agreed they're a terrorist, terrorist state. I mean, they, they do bad things, but, uh, I'm a little hesitant about it. But anyway, uh, it's apparently gonna, they're going to override his veto. So we'll have to watch how that plays out. And it really is going to be interesting if Hillary wins. I think that's a great point, Lori. What if Hillary wins? And I mean, she cannot be part of, uh, because she's been, right. she's been propped up by them. Yep. Okay, here's another one, and this is uh, a very interesting changing subject entirely. So there's endless analysis all the time of how much power social media has. I mean, I, I, I kind of, I do Facebook a lot because it's just easy and I have it down. I do Twitter some, but Facebook, which is kind of the home of communication, really for a lot of people, and they get their political news there, or they at least they share their news, they should put pictures up. But And so they make revenue by selling um, ads. And so Facebook, and they announced, um, actually Wall Street Journal had a big article about it, Facebook overestimated key video metric for two years. Let me put that in plain English. They estimated by approximately extra 80% the number of views the videos got. So people who bought ads who thought, wow, I got, I can't do math in my head, so someone have to help me here. I got 10 million views. No, you actually got 80% less than 10 million views. So, and they are right out there. I mean, they're right out there defending themselves. And this is, you know, it's whatever their defense is, it's hard to calculate. But I really think it's not just whether they lie, which is a bad thing, because they apparently did, at the very least, be extremely sloppy. It appears they intentionally misled their, their uh, people who buy those ads. But it also makes you sit back and think, so what is it that you do to communicate if Facebook ads, which are you know, so ubiquitous, don't do any good? Any thought on Facebook? I think there's enough anecdotal evidence that a lot of the social media platforms out there have been targeting or at least enforcing the rules differently against conservatives as they would against liberals. Uh, so I don't have a problem with this coming out if it means that the screws are going to be turned a little bit on Facebook and other organizations, and maybe that'll make them a little bit more susceptible to user feedback and user responsiveness and, and give them a little bit less leverage to continue doing what they've been doing against conservatives. So in that respect, I'm okay with this, and uh, I'm, you know, of course I feel bad for those who have been duped. Well, and if, if this is still the free market, like I hope it is, then that will probably uh, give their future customers pause to think about whether or not investing, you know, $3.50 to have, you know, this particular post uh, promoted. So, uh, you know, again, if, if this if we still have a choice in America on things even like, you know, promoting our posts on Facebook, then maybe people will stop and think about it. But we saw this week on Twitter, too, uh, Glenn Reynolds, uh, he was taken down. Uh, for making some comments about the North Carolina riots. And, and Glenn Reynolds is a very prominent conservative voice, mm-hmm. founder of Instapundit, isn't yes. it? Right, mm-hmm. Instapundit, yes. yeah. Yes, So you know, I, it's a very good point about the uh, punishment that kind of inherently would go to Facebook because they are, they take down conservative things, they contort conservative things. And the thing is, Facebook, it is... I mean, there are other social media platforms, but there's nothing like Facebook. I mean, there is no competitor. Yeah, but, you know... Understanding the free market, uh, once upon a time, there was nothing like a Cadillac or there was nothing like a Lincoln Continental. So uh, eventually people start to innovate and they improve. And one of the key points is that I think at some point in time you're going to see, you know, more of a 
constitutional conservative type of social media system because they're not going to continue to play this game. And I think that another place we need to look at this is, you know, our, our uh, higher education institutions and uh, what have you. You know, should we continue to send our, our kids to these institutions where we know they're being indoctrinated and not educated? So you look at a Hillsdale College, you look at a Northwood University. I mean, you know, we need to have more of those free market uh, conservative institutions out there that are preparing the next generation of conservative thought leaders in this country. And so I, I think that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg may uh, be riding <laughs> high right now, but uh, eventually the, the wheels of the free market will uh, will catch up to him. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. The one last thing I'll hit on, we have two minutes here, and <clears throat> there is discussion among the, in the National Defense um, National Defense Authorization Act, um, this idea of don't draft our daughters. And I don't actually know. Wade probably knows exactly where this stands. But there was an effort to say that women should be included in the draft. And this is actually still on the table in Washington, right? Yeah, and and we're going to be opposing that. And so, I mean, we could go on for an entire segment on just this issue. And I think if if more people want to look into some more information on this, Jude Eden is a female Mm -hmm. Marine who has done some great research on this. And we work with her very closely. Effectively, this has to do with whether or not women should be drafted. And I think that we have to look at this from what is the draft, the purpose of it, and that is that it is to for rapid comp- combat loss replacements. It is not for desk positions. And so the question is, is that a responsible decision? And in any other facet of life, I would say that you know equality is a big thing. The end result and purpose of the military is to win battles. And if this degrades our ability then we need to oppose that. Uh, and I think that we've got a lot of good female veterans on our side who understand that, you know, fundamentally uh, hand-to-hand combat and six foot three, six foot four, 200-pound men with 70 pounds of gear on their back is maybe not a combat multiplier if we're adding women to that equation. Uh, and so we're going to uh, continue opposing that. It's still on the front burner. We're not getting a lot of uh, – help from Republican leadership right now in advancing. What fight. is wrong with them? Okay, we have 45 seconds. And Mr. Lieutenant Colonel Allen West, you may have a thought or two on this. No, I agree wholeheartedly with Wade. Look, I'm 55 years old. I'm five foot nine. I'm 220 pounds. And I guarantee you, if I land a punch on Ronda Rousey, she's going to go down. Okay, <laughs> she's an exception. She's not a rule. And there's no fairness on the battlefield. Yep. It's about mano a mano. And, and I think we'd be a little bit smarter about this. And it yeah. isn't a, an issue of uh, equality because women do not have an equal chance of surviving in combat. Perfect equal, point. That's what Lori wants to say. Yep. We're equal, but we're not the same. Amen, sister. Okay, we're up on our break. This is, I want to thank our guests as first, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. Great to have you here. Great to have Wade Miller and Lori Medina here in the round table. And, and I brought break. a couple of guests. Uh, it is Hillary and her son, Jonathan, a great young conservative who is uh, 15 years of age. So thank you for allowing them to be here with your show. So glad they're here. We're giving them conservative training young. Come back for the second hour. Number one source for premium talk radio.
time for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to Hour 2 of America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. I love the second hour of the show. We have a second hour roundtable. And if you weren't tuned in the first hour, you did not hear that we have a new roundtable member. We're welcoming to our roundtable Wade Miller, who uh, is an employee of Heritage Action. But he's here speaking in his own capacity. And nothing he's saying reflects on heritage. Uh, but he's just a uh, he's a good friend first. He's a fount of knowledge and great thinker and former Marine. And um, just um, thrilled to have him join the roundtable. And then Lori Medina is here, who's been with us since the start. So second hour roundtable. First of all, welcome. Thanks for having me. Second hour roundtable. I'm just going to launch with my question. Ted Cruz announced on Friday that he plans to vote for Donald Trump and he spelled out reasons. He gave reasons. Some never Trumpers took great offense and other or very upset and others saw this as a wise, strategic or inevitable move. So the question is, did Ted Cruz hurt himself or help himself with this announcement? And will it help Trump? I don't know who wants to go first. We shouldn't. I don't know. Well, I'll answer this for me, Debbie, just because, I mean, I, you know, maybe our listeners know, maybe they don't, but I, I've never been a never Trumper, but I've been right on that edge um, about whether or not to be, whether or not vote for Trump. And um, most of y'all probably know that I've been supporting Ted Cruz and supported him through the, uh, while he was at the convention and, you know, the ridiculous booze and that whole thing. And I thought it was a very strong principled move for him to do that at the convention and to stand by that. Uh, for me, I felt like it was the wrong move for him to do this. I didn't feel like it, it benefited him, and I didn't feel like it benefited any of his supporters because, quite frankly, 99% of his supporters were going to do what they're going to do. They're not going to do it because Ted Cruz is telling them to do it. That's just not the kind of people that follow Ted Cruz. I mean, yeah, there's maybe those a few out there. There's always, you know, those kind of followers that do that. But I don't think this is going to affect the outcome of the election, whether or not Ted Cruz does this. By him doing this, though, I feel like it gives the Charles Krauthammers of the world, the Fox News, um, you know, wise head, you know, wise heads, supposedly. <laughs> talking <laughs> supposedly, heads. <laughs> supposedly Allegedly wise smart. talking heads. Yeah. It, it gives them the ability to say, well, he's just like everybody else. He's just like all the Republicans. He's doing this for personal gain. And um, I, I think it makes him look uh, less principled. So, okay, I then. Lori Medina, like this is why we do this because we don't <laughs> always have to agree. So, I'll start with Trump. I think that it's clear that this is. In his best interest, I think he get net gains from this. I think that there's he's at the end of the day he's going to have more votes than he would have not had otherwise. Uh, so that's simple. I think this is a net gain for Trump. I think for Cruz, it's it's a mixed bag. It depends on how you want to look at it. I think that in net and lo- over the long term, this will be good for him. Uh, but let's let me take a, a swing at some of the detractor statements. Uh, and 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 to, this is to varying degrees. And some people that I respect a lot are making some of these arguments. But one of them is that he caved in to the special special interests, to the donor class, to the establishment. And I understand. And, and look, at the end of the day, does Ted Cruz want to remain a senator? Yes. And it, are some of his moves going to be with that in mind? Yes. But that's not the entire uh, 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 ball of wax. I think that at the end of the day, his move, uh, whether he thinks it's going to be net good or bad for him over the long run, he's looking at a, a long-term picture here of what is going to be the outcome. And I think that uh, you know, in talking to people who are very close to him, I, I don't have this directly from him, so I'm not quoting him on this. 
But I think that two things really came out that were really important to him. And one of them was the pledge in which it specifically said that if he would support and endorse the nominee. And then the word endorse is actually in the pledge. And so that to him, he has made an entire career out of doing what he says and honoring his promises. And even though he's had, obviously, for a lot of reasons, some pushback, uh, or, or not some pushback, but there's, you know, some of the people that he ran against said some things were not necessarily flattering about his family, and that was a concern. I think that his family think that this is the right decision. And so he, after a conversation with his family and friends, decided that he needs to honor his pledge. And I think also long term, he's looking at this as a, uh, you know, a big thing to him is Scottish uh, Supreme Court. And, you know, in his comment, he also listed six other policy areas. But I think the Supreme Court has really got to be weighing heavy on on his heart right now. And he's looking at what could happen. And we're going to be talking more about this uh, later in the hour with Daniel Horowitz. Uh, But certainly a lot of the things that Daniel Horowitz wants to do would be a lot easier if we had a conservative Supreme Court on our side. And I think at the end of the day, if you were to really ask him and sit him aside and you know turn off all the cameras and say, in two or three years, uh, what would happen if we if if Hillary Clinton won and rechanged the uh, the Supreme Court? And if and if Ted Cruz could say, look, if we can remake the Supreme Court and that happens to cost me my Senate seat, I'm willing to make that sacrifice. I really honestly believe that Ted Cruz would do that. And I think that that's the way we have to look at this, that, yeah, there's a lot of variables at play. Uh, but at the end of the day, he is doing what he thinks is absolutely in the best interest long term of the country. And as a uh, Ted Cruz supporter myself, I'm going to be- get his back. Now, a lot of people may disagree with that, but I think that at the heart of it, that's what's going through his mind. I really do, too. And, you know, we're about um, out of time in this segment, but I just wanted to say about him, I I have no doubt there was pressure from donors and party people and just all sorts of people, pressures on him. And I don't think that they are something he could just completely ignore. But I do think there is an, an, an integrity that I've always discerned in him. And I still think he has it. And I still think he and many of us, I think Lori's point is really well taken about Anyone who loved Ted Cruz and really supports him, they've already thought through themselves. I think he took the same mental path that I've taken and others have taken, which is at the end of the day, you can't get anywhere if we have Hillary. So you got to have Trump come back after the break. And welcome back. This is America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis from our second hour roundtable with Wade Miller and Lori Medina. And we did our rapid fire roundtable thing about Ted Cruz endorsing Donald Trump. And we we're all talking in the break. And actually, I meant to mention to all you listeners that um, we are actually live streaming this uh, tonight on Facebook. And so, um, so actually, so Lori and Wade smile. Okay, I'm not on. We can't figure the camera angle off, so I'm not on it right now. But anyway, we are going to be live streaming the show on Facebook. So if you're listening in your car and pulling up in the driveway, oh, go in the house, turn on your computer. Anyway, what I want to say, though, we're going to continue on this um, Ted Cruz endorsement of Trump. Um, my other quick two points, and then I think they both had one more thing they wanted to add, but my other point was, I think I, I do, I will say, i very, very fond of Ted Cruz's father. I know him very well, Rafael Cruz. I know the family. I do think that Ted Cruz has a core of integrity that is um, is very rare in Washington. I think he knows exactly what he believes in, and he just will fight to the finish for it. And I love that about him because I agree with his values. But um, I think in this case, he did, there is an advantage, and, and this may have weighed in his thinking too, but there is an advantage um, if Donald Trump should not prevail in November, if Hillary wins, that 
there's not going to be anyone able to point to Ted Cruz and say, well, you see, if you'd only endorsed, you know, it's your fault. That argument's gone. And the second point is, and I said this on Twitter too, and by the way, if you follow me at Debbie, can we talk? We had quite a discussion about this on Twitter, but anyway. Um, and the other point just is, there is talk among some of the establishment people in Texas about whether someone might challenge Ted Cruz in a primary because he's going to run for Senate again in 2018. I think that Ted going ahead and endorsing Donald Trump takes a big, takes a lot of wind out of those sails because, you know, you have someone saying, I'm the party loyalist. I endorsed, you know, I stood there. Ted Cruz didn't stick with the party. I think that whole argument is just gone then. So I think that um, that was on those two points. I think it was wise. I, I just, I, I guess, and I know it sounds Pollyanna, but I'll just say it. I think that Ted Cruz has a core integrity that where he, how he sees it is, we can't have Hillary because she really will. She doesn't love this country. She will continue in this path of socialism and big government and foreign policy weakness and border insecurity and all the lawlessness that just reigns in the, in the Democrat Party today. And he's just saying, I can't be part of, of I, I have to fight that. So what, both of you want to add something. You want to- uh, I'll say uh, I think that what has not been uh, talked about, but it by anyone that yet that I've seen, if, if you go through his statement and you look at the six points he makes and the things he agrees with Donald Trump on that we need to move forward with, that's a mandate for the first hundred days or first year of a Trump presidency. And I think that that kind of sends a signal to Republican leadership that if Donald Trump does win, that we are going to have a Republican president who's in office, who's on our side on these issues, uh, supposedly and hopefully, <laughs> uh, and that McConnell and Ryan cannot just sit down and play the same games that they've been playing and not pushing forward these important uh, mandates and that Cruz is signaling that if, if you know, Trump, if you can win, I'm going to be fighting on my side of the aisle to push these things and I'm going to need you to use the bully pulpit. And that's something that, so for instance, Trump has not weighed in at all on the continuing resolution that's going forward right now. If he wins the presidency, he's going to have to. He's going to have to use that bully pulpit and the two of them working together towards that could be a beautiful thing. Uh, and, I, and I think that Cruz's six points are a good framework for that first hundred days, first year of his uh, presidency. That's a great point. Debbie, back to what you were saying about the character of Ted and, um, you know, the reason why you think he made this decision. And I, I agree 100 percent with what you're saying about Ted's character. But the point is, is that the three of us sitting here in this room, we all know Ted. Vast amount of Americans don't know Ted like we do. That's and true. so they are taking this from the filter of the media, from these talking heads, and it's coming across to these Americans that uh, Ted gave in, that Ted, you know, he had principles, had principled reasons for, uh, you know, for not endorsing Trump originally, and that uh, suddenly those principles are gone. Um, you know, all of this... Because they don't have this knowledge, this intimate knowledge that we do. So he hurt himself with them, you're saying. Yes, right. I mean, that's what I'm saying. With us, no. But I think the rest of America that don't know him, and and this is just, you know, me on Twitter, you know, (laughs) all the the Twitterverse out there, the people that don't know Ted, they have no idea. And real quick, I'll add, last night, well, excuse me, the night before that, I was in Tyler, Texas at a grassroots uh, awards banquet that Ted Cruz was at. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a really good indication of where he's at with the grassroots in Texas. I think he's in a really good spot. He got a standing uh, uh, ovation from 300 people. So I think in terms of the short term, Ted Cruz is fine. I think he is going to sail through to his uh, reelection. I think he's one of the better senators in the last half century. 
Uh, and I, I think that he's got plenty of time to demonstrate to more and more people over the uh, the entire country that he is one of the leaders of the conservative movement. And he's going to have the ability to repair whatever angst that people might have uh, because he's going to continue fighting for conservative principles and he's not going to care if the establishment opposes him or not. So he has a lot of time to reestablish that positioning and, and, and prove yeah. that. I agree, too. We were at an event last night. My husband and I were at an event, a, uh, a huge Tea Party thing. And uh, Ted wasn't there, but Rafael Cruz was. And I mean, the, he just mentioned Ted's name and everyone's standing and clapping. They're just they're so grateful for him in Texas, like the uh, core, you know, and they're really uh, people use it. Isn't there, they're just heartland America people who are upset at watching the direction of our country. Well, I want to in this segment, we only have like four minutes, but I really wanted to hit an important thing. And I want to have Wade mostly talk about it. But I always try to just a little bit set the table, you know, obviously we have the election for the presidency in November and then between November and January 20th, there is a period of time frequently referred to as a lame duck time where, you know, hopefully there is not a Democrat taking over in January. And so people fear what President Obama might do in that time, but they also would love to have most big issues off the table to make it as difficult as possible for the Democrats or frankly, the Republicans who never stand up to do any damage during that lame duck period. And so there was a, um, there's an issue that we've talked about in the show many times about how the budget works. And when people, when in Congress choose to use a continuing resolution, a CR, it's just a short-term fix. It's a band-aid fix of time. And then you have to go back and fund things again. So isn't the, I think the funding runs out this Friday, this coming Friday. And so they had to do something by this coming Friday. And so they're setting on continuing resolution, which basically is everything you wouldn't want Republicans to stand for. So Wade Miller is going to take it away here. So the big problem with this is that Congress, McConnell, Cornyn, and it looks like perhaps Ryan are angling in on supporting this. And then really McCornin, uh, McConnell and Cornyn, excuse That's me. McCornyn, okay. Wait, wait. Honest mistake. Why don't you just shorten it to the three stooges? Well, <laughs> Cornyn and McConnell have really been pushing this. And the problem with this is, it, is that this continuing resolution would leave us in December in which we have people who are retiring and people who have been unelected and an outgoing president that have a lot of say in policy that which could affect us for perhaps the next year. And if you push this into December, we're going to be left in a situation where we're coming up on Christmas. A lot of members of Congress are going to be in a hurry to get out of there. That gives Republican leadership a lot of power to dictate the, 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 a longer-term spending bill. And so the danger here is that if you have a, a December omnibus bill that c- comes up at that point, we're going to have very little leverage. And they're going to basically strip out anything that would be controversial because uh, McConnell and Cornyn – and, and, and to some degree, Ryan, do not want the friction of fighting uh, the progressive agenda and if it could result in partial government shutdown. And so the problem is if this ends in December, and that's what they're looking at right now, uh, we could be left with an omnibus bill that will advance not, none of the conservative reforms we want, and it could be an, an entire year. The problem with that is if uh, Trump wins, we are now removing a major leverage point for an entire first year of his presidency to get anything major done. And if you know people study past history, the mandate and the public support for major and rapid reforms in a presidency is at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And we're going to miss that. And, and then I'll quickly uh, point out that in this CR, it's not just the status quo. They're actually adding in Zika funding. I think it's $1.1 billion for Zika funding, even though there's something like $2.8 billion in Ebola unspent, funding out there yeah. that's not been spent. And the issue here is that they actually took out a rider which would prevent this from going to a Planned Parenthood. So right. not only is Planned Parenthood still getting fully funded through United States taxpayer dollars, 
They are now creating another funding stream through the Zika funding, which Planned Parenthood in Florida and uh, 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 Costa Rica could Puerto Rico. Th- Puerto Rico, thank you. Uh, Puerto Rico could then qualify for. So it's actually a pay increase for Planned Parenthood. There's just nothing to like about this, and it's terrible strategy if you're conservative. I'm so glad you explained all that. And, you know, we um, we can talk about this again maybe with Daniel Horowitz in the, the last uh, segment with him. But, again, for our listeners, you know, the whole job Congress is really supposed to do is come up with a budget. I mean, the, the power that the Constitution gives our elected officials is the power of the purse. It's the main power they have. So they can fund things through a series of continuing resolutions, or they can get, as Wade was referring to a moment ago, omnibus, which is just a big old, big old fat bill that funds everything. And it's a brilliant point. I hadn't even thought about that. That if the if we get an they put an omnibus in place in December after this continuing resolution ends, that takes away the whole ability of the uh, Trump administration to put in place all these things we were just talking about a few minutes ago to put their priorities in place into spending because it'll they'll be that's just really it's so sinister. And again, you know, if you want to know why we have Donald Trump as a candidate, it's because people like Mitch McConnell and John Cornyn and Paul Ryan and many others in Washington don't have the backbone to stand up against the leftist agenda in Washington. They just surrender. So this mean guy's playing music while I'm trying to talk, but here's the story we have after a break. We have Daniel Horowitz joining us. Brilliant guy from a conservative review. You don't want to miss him. there and so glad you've tuned in tonight to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis, your host, and my second hour roundtable tonight includes Lori Medina and Wade Miller. And if you didn't hear us say it before, we are attempting live streaming this on Facebook tonight. And I will tell you that the beauty of it is we couldn't get the camera set up, so I'm in it. So I, I'm just telling you, but really, you can tune in and see Wade and Lori. Well, we also have a guest online tonight, and I'm very, very, I was just really honored he would join our show tonight and excited that he's going to be coming on with us. We have him on the line, Daniel Horowitz. Hello, sir. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. And being that it's Sunday night, I'm really glad you guys are not live streaming from my end. <laughs> I'm not dressed <laughs> for the occasion. <laughs> All right. Well, we're glad you're here. I'm going to just take one moment to tell our listeners a bit about you. Um, I uh, actually downloaded on my iPad Daniel Horowitz's new book, Stolen Sovereignty, uh, and but then I had to order it in, on paper so I could mark it up so we could talk. But uh, Daniel Horowitz is the author of a book, Stolen Sovereignty, How to Stop Unelected Judges from Transforming America. It is a brilliant and insightful book. But the other little quick introductory things, Daniel Horowitz is currently the senior editor at Conservative Review, which is a great website to go to. Lori and I talk about this all the time. We it's love, my favorite. We love that website. Um, and just on top of everything, and he's had a, just a brilliant uh, career um, history in working with conservative organizations. He formerly directed policy at the Madison Project. Um, he was a contributing editor at Red State and a contributor at the Blaze and Breitbart. So he's just a fount of knowledge on all sorts of uh, policy issues in Washington. But I want to spend this segment talking about your book, and then we can, we have a lot of other questions. We're going to all four of us talk at once after that. But on the subject of your book, you know, one th- point you made, I'd love to have you just start off on this, is we have become accustomed in America to thinking, well, we have, we have candidates, we have elections, we have a Congress, we have a president, or on the state level, we have whatever we have, but we've become accustomed to just assuming that once the Supreme Court or 
appellate federal appellate courts or state courts have spoken and we lose the issue there or a, a resolution comes out of a, a court that is uh, seems contrary to what the American people want, that we're just stuck. And your book is saying no. So tell us about that. Absolutely. Obviously, it's a very multifaceted book, lots of very current issues, um, you know, immigration, religious liberty, fraudulent voting problems, and all through the prism of the federal judiciary and stolen sovereignty, how the unelected branches of government pretty much decide everything. And my point is exactly what you said. This is not the system of governance we adopted, that you, know, you have a state legislature pass a law or on a federal level, you have Congress pass a law, you have a governor or a president has one shot to veto it, and then you just submit it to the eminent tribunal to get another veto, and then they get to veto the law, and that's it. Um, you know, fundamentally, that is not the system of governance we, we adopted. The, the courts have no such power on a federal level. For the most part in my book, I don't discuss that premise as much. I discuss it a lot in my writings. I'm going to have another one out this week on, on another court case. But to the extent they have that ill-gotten power, the notion that there's absolutely nothing we can do other than hope to appoint better judges or to amend the Constitution is nonsense. I hear people say, oh, you know, they redefine the building block of all civilization. They redefine marriage. Ho-hum, I guess we just need to amend the Constitution to say a marriage is a marriage. That's ridiculous. Congress, in a Republican form of government, always has the final say. As Madison said, the legislature predominates in a Republican form of government. Article 3, Section 2 not only gives Congress the authority, the final say, over the scope of the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, and certainly the lower courts. By the way, they are created by Congress. They can make them. They can break them. They can say they have to sit with a dunce cap when they state uh, <laughs> a case. They that can, sounds they, good. You, you know, look, they could take the Fifth Circuit and say, uh, you know, they, they have jurisdiction over one mile of desert in Texas. I mean, they, they could they could do whatever they want. But even the Supreme Court, they have a the Supreme Court has a specific uh, original jurisdiction from the Constitution, but it's very esoteric. It really doesn't affect too many cases. Most of what's known as the appellate jurisdiction is subject to whatever regulation Congress makes. And I think just one more point, it's even more than that. It's, it's not just that they have the ability to, to veto any statute unless Congress takes it, takes it away from them. It's the opposite. Unless Congress affirmatively grants them authority to adjudicate a specific subject matter, they do not have that authority. Even uh, Justice Marshall, who is the godfather of kind of judicial activism, a strong judiciary, he, he said as much. And, and I go through in Chapter 9 particularly, it's it very important in the book, I, I go through the first Congress and its laws. It's always very important to watch what that first Congress did, because that was a transitional period where you had the same individuals who helped craft Article 3 of the Constitution. They served as the first members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. They served as the first members of the Supreme Court. How they envisioned and how they actually practiced the judiciary, and it was very clear that Congress was king. So this is not something that requires a um, constitutional amendment. Congress could vote tomorrow to say, look, they don't have the ability to overturn state immigration enforcement laws, state election integrity laws. You, you, I mean, just see what you have in Texas there. This is a great state to discuss the, you know, through the prism of, 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 of judicial tyranny because Texas, I mean, you guys got you know, some good guys in state government. You have supermajorities in the state legislature. But you guys know whatever you want to do, pick your dream legislation, it will be tossed out by the courts 
unless Congress takes away their power. Hey, Daniel, this is Wade Miller. Uh, good, hey. Good to talk to you again. We talked a few days ago, actually. Uh, so one of the biggest excuses that the establishment will use to avoid moving forward with difficult reforms is that uh, let's let the courts uh, decide this. Let's kick it over and see what they say. How much can you kind of speak on that? And how much of a hurdle do you think that they're going to be uh, in, in tr- moving forward with your your solutions? You know, I, I think you've touched on the linchpin to our stolen sovereignty, why we no longer have government by the people, because the founders envisioned that the power would all be in the legislature. Most of it would be there. They were more concerned about tyranny coming from, from the legislature. You know, after all, they had the power of the purse, the power to create laws. And, it, you know, they never thought for a minute that they would outsource their will to the other two branches. But it's exactly as you said. The, the nature of politics nowadays is such that the political party system kind of supplanted our system of, of constitutional government. But then, you know, it's not just that we have two parties. We have really one party and the other one's a fake opposition. So they, they want the talking point during the election to complain about an issue, but they don't want to be on the hook to actually fight for it. So you're absolutely right. This is what they're going to say with everything. But what I tell people is this. The same way people say, I want a Republican president and Senate because I want tax reform. I want free market health care reform. The same way you're going to do that, which is not, you know, it's, it's no easy task. You could, you, could do this, you could do this. And I would argue this is easier. This is an easier sell. This is a way of coming to American people and saying, look, we're a divided gover- government. We're a divided country. We have a very polarized country. And the point is, in a polarized country, the people, and, and especially in the particular states, need to decide the outcome of these divisive philosophical political issues, marriage, abortion, religious liberty. It has to be decided by the people, you know, as opposed to tax and you know, regulatory policy where you're going to kind of brush up against that blue wall, 30, 40 percent of the population. I think this is a broader sell, um, but it's going to have to start with some of our conservative members. Medina, um, my question to you has to do with with this election specifically, and that um, you know a lot of what we hear from the Trump camp and is you have to vote for Trump because of the Supreme Court, and that's the reason. Even if you don't like him and he's an immoral guy and you don't like what he stands for, uh, you still have to vote for him because of the Supreme Court. What what what's your answer to that, Daniel? And let wow. me jump in and say, hold on a second here. We have a minute 23, so go ahead, but we may have to you know, continue this after the break, but please go ahead. No, absolutely. Well, it, it, just, just uh, you know, for, for time's sake, if you Google, I have an article at, at Conservative Review, 12 reasons why the courts are irremediably broken. And I directly answer that question, 12 reasons why it's not nearly enough to, oh, just elect a Republican president to appoint better judges. I, I thought we lost the courts already. It's kind of funny how yep. every four years – for the last 50 years, they dangle in front of us, we're going to lose the courts. And then, you know, we lose the election anyway, and somehow we revive the courts. They get revived again four years later right. in order to entice, uh, you know, Republicans into voting for these lousy candidates. I'm not telling people not to vote for him, vote for him. What I'm trying to say is we need a conservative president to enact judicial reform and take the power away from them. We don't need a Republican president to, quote unquote, appoint better judges. We have long Cross that point of no return. 
I agree. We're speaking tonight with Daniel Horowitz, who's the author of a book, which I just could not commend more strongly, Stolen Sovereignty, and also his columns. The one you just mentioned, uh, I want to mention to our leaders, this website we love, Conservative Review, and it's called 12 Reasons Why Federal Judiciary is Irremediably Broken. And I actually have it in front of me because I was going to comment on some of the points in there, but we're up on our break time here. But I, I love the one, the, many of the points you made in there, and it just helps yep. you realize that it's way past just getting a conservative in place of Scalia. Yep. The long-term impact of decades of liberalism and the, packing the courts, we're way past behind the eight ball. So we come back, we can talk about that a little bit more. We're Daniel Horowitz. This is Debbie Georgiatis. America Can We Talk with Lori Medina, Wade Miller. Don't go away. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Before we continue our amazingly interesting conversation with Daniel Horowitz, I want to take a moment and thank the sponsor of this show. The show is sponsored by GC Works, for which I am indescribably grateful. GC Works is a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. I am so grateful for their support. Love doing this show. Love talking to you every week about America. At the end of the day, this show is about preserving the unique, precious identity of America. And the subject we're talking tonight with Daniel Horowitz is exactly, is one of the main things we have to save is the true the intended meaning of the separation of the three powers and the the appropriate weight of power in the executive, judicial, and legislative branches. So we're speaking with the very brilliant Daniel Horowitz. And so on the break, we were all talking here. Um, and now I want to throw over to you this question. So I just honestly, we're talking about, you'd have to have, it seems like a lot of education of members of Congress, of the House and the Senate, education of the American people to choose people to go to the House and Senate to even get close to the idea that we could convince Congress to actually limit the jurisdiction of the federal courts in the manner they're permitted to do. I mean, your, your book is making the brilliant point. Congress has the ability to fix this in large measure. But, I mean, we're just talking about, can you even imagine the, the uh, Democrats who get their agenda through by, by through the courts? Why would they ever go along with this? Like, how are we going to accomplish this? Tell us how we can, we can make this happen. Sure. Well, you know, the, the founders had, had tremendous brilliance in the system they set up. What you're discussing are two of the three entities discussed in the Constitution, the people and the federal government. But there's something that stands in between, and those are the states. It's the states mm-hmm. that, are getting, that, are, that are getting crushed by this. I mean, you're seeing this. Anything you want to do, you, know, you want to regulate abortion clinics there in Texas, you want to have individuals show uh, photo ID when they vote so you don't have fraudulent elections, Whatever it is, the courts are crushing the states. The idea is, even if we don't mechanically pass such legislation, to at least have it out there, it will weaken the power of the courts. And in conjunction with states just fighting back, states need to fight back. And this is what I would argue you know, local conservative activists in the states need to push the states to not fall in line. You know, let, let me just juxtapose for you a minute. Um, the way the Democrats get things done. If you always, if you ever want to know how to get something done, watch the Democrats. So that's true. Contrast, that's sad. Contrast the red states after Obergefell, the marriage case, to the blue states after Heller. 
here we are almost a decade after it somehow took the Supreme Court to <laughs> affirm the Second Amendment. Uh, but, you know, and I live in Maryland. I still cannot carry a gun outside my home, any gun, with any ammo, under any circumstance. You know, that they have been able – they chip away and chip away and chip away. Whereas, you know, with um, Obergefell, all right, that's it. The building block mm-hmm. of civilization is gone, and everyone just fell in line. They didn't even try to challenge it, challenge it in certain circumstances, and continue doing what you're doing. I'll say it right here now. At some point, the states are going to have to say no. And I think we are rapidly approaching that. And that's really what I wanted to give the intellectual firepower for that. At some point, you know, when they're mandating transgenderism, when they are saying you have to have non-citizens voting, they just had that in Kansas and Georgia, uh, you can't uh, force them to, to submit voter ID. I mean, this is a problem. States cannot function. And at some point, the st- I'll tell you this much, the states aren't going to get the power um, granted to them on their own. They're going to have to rip it back. So, Daniel, you know, we have an amazing uh, attorney general down here in Texas, Ken Paxton, um, and he has been involved in a lot of lawsuits against the government and 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 stood firm on a lot of important principles. So, for example, like this voter ID law, um, what should he do in in your terms? What what should he do? And, of course, Governor Abbott. Sure. I I mean, what what tends to happen is when – we have to understand, even under the liberal system of the judiciary, their conception of it, it's still not a judicial veto. No such thing exists. What, what literally happens mechanically is that you have an individual plaintiff, which usually winds up being a straw man these days, and somehow they get standing. Um, and they just say that, well, that guy is asserting a fundamental right, and therefore we're going to block implementation of that state law as it relates to that individual plaintiff. Um, you know, you, you just keep throwing up roadblocks, and that's the thing. Unfortunately, our guys just fall apart and say, you know, we're not going to mandate voter ID at all. Um, you need to look at the very narrow circumstances in each case and, and, and make them come back and fight, make them come back and fight. And again, I'm just telling you, there is going to be a time when we could retreat no further. I and, couldn't. And, and, Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. And I would just say we are when the courts are mandating anti-religious liberty stuff, they're throwing out state religious liberty laws, the, the, the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, at some point you got to say no. Um, you know, you had that recently with counties being forced to issue birth certificates to, to uh, Ill- illegal immigrants. I mean, no. <laughs> I am just saying, and, and I think there is this devilish side to me that does want Hillary Clinton elected just for that, because I think it, it will force the issue. It will get so bad that the states will just they, – they cannot reasonably deal with it, not just from the judiciary, but also from the executive branch. And you're right. Congress really needs to take back the power, but if they don't do it, the states have to step in. Hey, Daniel, this is Wade again. Uh, in terms of pushback, are you familiar with interposition, and what do you think of that as a solution that the states could use in pushing back on this type of stuff? And explain what that is. So interposition – Daniel? Are you familiar with interposition? Yep. So, uh, I, do you think that that's a, one of the options that states, like uh, the governors, could be using? I, I, I think, I think a lot of the problem stems from this misconception that states are beholden to the federal government for for every last resource, and, and there, there's truth to it. But you know, let's take Title IX for example. 
Um, everyone's talking about the transgender mandate. Oh man, they're going to condition the education funding to to uh, kowtowing to Obama's bathroom agenda. It, it has a much louder bark than its bike and bite. And I, I just think that at some point it, it's that funding that we need to just challenge. You know, we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. It's a little bit hard for a president to run for re-election, some of these senators running on cutting off funding to their own states. And I think it's that premise that we really need to, to challenge. Yeah, I was going to say, we're, we're speaking again, if you just happen to tune in, to Daniel Horowitz, uh, who is a senior editor at the Conservative Review, a great website and author of Stolen Sovereignty, and just a brilliant writer and thinker. And just honestly, once I started reading your articles, I got distracted preparing for the show because I kept going, I didn't see that one, <laughs> reading more and more. Just great, great writer. But one point you made, I just, I'd love to have people, I think if you're listening, you might be thinking, well, you know, yes, the courts are out of control and the liberals are accomplishing their agenda through the courts and the elected officials can't seem to stop them. We're all surrendering. And you've got this great idea or great point you're making about how you know, it was not intended by the framers to have the court really have the power it does in essentially policy making. But I just was amazed by something. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole long quote, but you talk a lot about what the founders really meant. And I know for conservatives that really matters. But, you know, it just even if you don't even if you're not a conservative and just wedded to what the, the founders intended, it's a real window on how much our country has moved away from the founders' intention. It's a quote that you uh, shared in um, one of your articles. The constitutional crisis is crushing us, but there's a way to break free. And it was a note by James Madison. And he said, in describing the courts, in describing the federal government versus the state, he said, the operations of the federal government will be most extensive and important in times of war and danger and those of the state governments in times of peace and security as the former periods former meaning um times of war and danger will probably bear a small proportion to the latter the state governments will here enjoy yet another advantage over the federal government i realize this is about this is different point than the power of the courts but it's about how much the federal government has expanded its role and then passes laws that get into the uh, federal court system to be adjudicated. And I just, I love that refreshing picture with it, what the founders intended, which was a, a really con- a close connection between the people and th- the local government and the federal government being smaller and the judiciary to have pretty much the role that the elected officials said it could have. So we're like about one minute from the end of the show. And so I want to ask you if you could please tell people where they can get your book and where they can go to read your other, your articles. Sure. And, and, and by the way, that quote really sums it up. He goes on to say that states control all matters of internal order. I mean, so that's what we were talking about there with interposition. I mean, th- like I said, we are headed towards that point. At some point, it's going to become so blatantly obvious to the public that the federal government is crushing the states when, when maybe they'll have to start mandating sex change operations. I don't know. But <laughs> when it gets bad enough, I mean, we will have to go down that road, but until now, we need to force Congress to at least take, take back the power. You can follow me at RM Conservative on Twitter, conservativereview.com. We have a podcast also twice a week, The Conservative Conscience. You can get it at iTunes. Um, politics doesn't fit on a bumper sticker, so we have it in long form in the articles and the, in the podcast, and then obviously my book, Stolen Sovereignty. Um, I just you know give one note here. In addition to the judiciary, we have a lot of discussion about national sovereignty and immigration, what our founders thought on immigration, what our original traditions were. We hear a lot of phony rhetoric from the left that 
you know, our values and traditions are open borders is absolutely not true. A lot of good historical stuff, but it all relates to some of the most important issues of our time. Daniel Horowitz, I commend your writing, your speaking, your articles, your books. I thank you so much for calling in tonight. It was great having you. Really looking forward to coming back. And we will invite you back. All right. Well, you know, I would say this is the shortest two hours of my week. Every week, it just kills me, but we're out of time. We have about a minute left here. I first want to thank Wade Miller for joining the Roundtable Second Hour. Loved having you. Thanks to Lori for being here. She's been here since the beginning. And also want to encourage you, this show, America Can We Talk, really is just dedicated to the idea that America is the most precious country on earth, and every generation has a job to protect it. And right now, it's our turn. Also want to encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. And we have a really brand spanking new website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org. And our Facebook page, America Can We Talk, is very active. Go there, join us, get in the discussion. Even liberals comment and they send me emails. You can email me at talk at gmail.com. And I uh, love having you tune in and I hope you will every single Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. All of our old shows are on podcasts, our old interviews. You can check out old interviews anytime you'd like on the website. And thank you for tuning in. And here at America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America. Come back next Sunday. Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to americacanwetalk.org. America Can We Talk, truth about America. You're listening to RNCN, the digital destination for premium talk radio.